This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Listeners should be aware this podcast contains strong language. Today on the Indo-Daily, the Anglo tapes, a national scandal, and how the Irish independent broke the story. Part two. By now we know there are three Irish independent journalists who have been working behind the scenes on audio recordings from inside Anglo-Irish Bank. Because it was public interest journalism at its best, and that was our protection. The Irish economy had collapsed off the back of this bank. It had effectively threatened the euro, if not perhaps Ireland's membership of the euro. The guys in the bank talking to each other very candidly, very aware, you know, regardless of how they got to the situation they were in, they're very aware that the situation is absolutely existential. JB, how are you doing? How are you? Grand. Um, another day, another billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to say, it was, if your friend was talking to you, he'd probably say, a great day, great buzz in the dealing room. Everybody's tail was up. Fantastic. <laughs> oh yeah, did I finish in a billion? Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> um. So these taped conversations between senior banking executives, I mean, they were pretty shocking. We heard them laughing and joking about their dealings with the financial regulator and indeed the trouble Anglo was facing. So the first story is about to hit the newsstands, but what happens next takes everybody by surprise. The Irish independent newspaper has got hold of tape recordings of top bosses there who laugh about the fact that the bank has told the government it only needs seven billion euros. And that, that number is, is seven, but the reality is that actually we need more than that. <laughs> the two men are heard laughing and joking about the regulator's reaction. Okay. I want to see that. So, anyway. I listened to, to the latest tapes, and I think like everybody else, I felt quite sickened by it. Uh, not only um, on the face of it by what was said, but just the tone and the attitude of those uh, who were involved at the highest level in Anglo. If, if I go into Don's store and steal to feed my family, I'll end up before the courts, right? But yet, if, if, Thank if, you. If, uh, if, if bankers, if bankers deliberately defraud the state, 
boast about it, laugh about it, boast about their meetings with ministers, it'd be okay. So teach that with respect. The book stops with you. The book stops with the government and I, I'm going after them. I'm Siobhan Maguire. And joining me again to share their own experiences from that time are Paul Williams, special correspondent, Donal O'Donovan, business editor, and Fionnán Sheehan, Ireland editor. Paul, this story really took the world by storm and indeed allowed a whole new way to share the story uh, worldwide over myriad platforms. We broke new territory in all of this because this was the very first time they knew what they were using language like platform agnostic at the time. It was often nonsense, but it was, it was it was true though. Where we were moving to the digital age, so suddenly we had something that was fit for print, but also something for online. So we had the words and the sound, and there was a, there was a brilliant job done on it right across the board the way it was rolled out. But as I said, it really did take the world by storm, quite literally, because that week, I think there was somebody in the Indo uh, did an analysis of it. And I think we met the front pages of something like 80 newspapers across the world. It was the talk of the banking world. Did you see what happened? The Irish bankers, bankers themselves, and everybody was suddenly terrified because these lines are automatically taped as part of regulation. So these guys were speaking freely because they never thought that their words would ever come back to haunt them. Uh, it was extraordinary stuff. So, so, so it's preached. It's preached off. We can pay you back, which is never. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's in the promo. That's in the term. <laughs> that's right. We're going to give you a So under under the under the terms that say the payment, we said no. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not a ticket. <laughs> It's fascinating to listen to them again, Donal. But you can't forget that at the heart of their discussions is the fate of us, the taxpayer. The stakes are high. That's right, yeah. What always struck me, I suppose, about the tapes is I think they're like the figure of of David Drum, the character of David Drum, he's really clear-sighted. He knows the stakes are high. He also knows that he's smarter than the regulator and he's smarter than the politicians. And that comes across really, really, really clearly. Undoubtedly, like what you're hearing is duplicitous. You know, they're talking about really effectively reeling in the regulator, reeling in the taxpayer, reeling in, you know, the exchequer. And we know that that happened. I prefer to call it blow that whistle now. Yeah. And uh, if you said to me the worst of this was, Dave, let's, let's shut the doors yeah. for Q1. Uh, I'd be with you on it. Okay. And if that's the decision we're going to make, let's make it now, John. Yeah. Because it's very easy to make it now. Yeah. Because we just tell Declan, look, shut down the fucking loans. Just don't do any. You know, let the lad tidy up their files and fucking help out with fucking uh, future bond issuances and and what have you. And, you know, and fucking brush up on their fucking German. Um, Yeah. uh, Right now, lending isn't the game. Look, we can turn that on any time. You know, it's not that this is sort of, you know, outside of the experience of ordinary. It's worth going back, you know, if you think about not so much the period of the bailouts, the tapes are from 2008, but maybe 2013, you know, when they came out, unemployment was really, really high. You know, I think it was kind of 14, 15 percent. And it had been really high for five years. People were really beaten up. 
Um, I actually just looked the other day at a kind of a long-term rent chart for Ireland. Rents were coming down, were still coming down in Dublin in 2013. So, you know, if you moved to Dublin in June, your rent was going to be cheaper than it had been in May, which was cheaper than it had been in April. That is, I think, for young people working in, in Ireland right now, that is almost kind of unfathomable. But that's really because there weren't that many jobs. There, were not, there wasn't demand for, for places to rent because people were emigrating en masse. There was like a really kind of beaten up mood in the country. Austerity had, you know, was really the reality of people's lives. Interestingly enough, I, I sort of reflect on Irish Water, I think, was formally created two weeks after the tapes ran. You know, there were lots of factors that, that led into kind of the exhaustion of austerity. But I think the kind of insight, the revelation that the bailout, the banking bailout, which was enormous, massively expensive. It wasn't just a thing that happened, which I think was a lot of the narrative kind of that had, had come from 2008. It was a thing that was done. And that's quite different. And, and here were some of the people who did it. And it didn't have to happen the way it happened. So I think in a way it did help kind of break people out of maybe the trance of the crash. And if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. People laughed listening to, to the tapes, but they also... They were also very angry, as you say. You were angry listening back to them. I was. My blood was boiling. Yeah. Because that buzzword, austerity, my God, you couldn't get away from it. No, you couldn't at the time. I think austerity was the reality of 2013, even more than 2008. And there was a sense that you had to be somehow grateful to be in employment. Because as you mentioned, unemployment was so high. It was not a nice time to be around. It wasn't. This and, and I think maybe that part of what the tapes did was they concentrated sort of, well, well, how did this happen? Why are we living like this? And people were genuinely angry after that. And, and very little had happened. There hadn't been a banking inquiry. The banking inquiry came a couple of years later. There hadn't been criminal investigations and prosecutions and things like that. Nothing had kind of happened. It had just sort of all rolled over. And I think they did put down a marker. I think it was, it was important in that sense. And it changed the mood. Invest a lot. If they saw, if they saw the enormity of it up front, they might decide. They might decide they have a, a choice. You know what I mean? They might say that the cost of taxpayers is too high. It was too high. In reality, Anglo's rescue was closer to 30 billion euros. Ireland's rescue of its banks so big that the country itself had to go cap in hand to Europe and the IMF, brought to the brink of bankruptcy. So Fiona, we had the first day and we had uh, this huge excitement in newsrooms across Europe, actually. I remember working in a different newsroom at the time and we were all crowded around one PC to listen to the audio tapes that appeared on that first day under Paul's byline. But the second day, now that was truly significant. Things probably blew up to an even greater extent on the second day when you had basically the Anglo bankers effectively kind of laughing at the the notion that the German taxpayer would be bailing them out here and the famous phrase Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber alles uh, was used. How are you? Grant, Grant. Uh, David there? Yep. Hiya. How's it going? Brad. What's up today? Um, I don't know, making, um, making nice progress. Uh, uh, you're using that guarantee. You're paying too much in Germany, I heard now as well. Fucking ridiculous, John. Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber, <laughs> 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 
That got massive traction right across Europe, but particularly in Germany, the massive anger there at it. And during that week, you had the then German Chancellor, the dominant figure in European politics and one of the biggest in, on the world stage, Angela Merkel, responding to what had appeared in the pages of the Irish Independent. I agree with the comments of uh, the Chancellor last night in respect of uh, her comments about uh, revelations from tapes concerning Anglo-Irish Bank. Probably the biggest reaction came from Germany and it wasn't just a tabloid reaction, very serious publications in Germany reacted really viciously to to this. The the venerable Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung said in, in its pages, take a bag and put this in it. First, the management of the former Anglo-Irish Bank and those employees who appear in the newly published audio tapes and behave like arrogant brats. Second, money managers of all kinds, such as shareholders, bondholders and depositors from home and abroad, who have entrusted money to this so-called bank after the crisis broke. Third, officials in the then Irish government, regulators and the central bank, who have been watching the going-on for far too long, regardless of whether they did not see or could not see the debacle. Fourth, the authorities in European institutions, who watched passively in the Irish state, allowed its banks to rise and then allowed the European Central Bank to act in a way that is more than just bordering on monetary financing. When the bag is filled with these people, take a stick and beat until the wailing is unbearable. Then take all the decision makers in Europe in hand and guarantee the citizens that a debacle like Anglo-Irish Bank will never be allowed to happen again. This has damaged our reputation. But I think every leader in the room at the European Council understands that this was a time in the past insofar as Ireland was concerned. And we do need to be able to examine uh, the culture of the so-called tiger years, uh, which led to this situation of, uh, of a toxic nexus uh, between uh, the banking world and the world of uh, government and senior personnel. Then there was references to the attitude of, of their bondholders towards their position and, and there was a reference to Merle Lynch and they've signed a debt warrant. And then there was a reference to, within banking circles, the view on Anglo and also AIB and their uh, activities that it was lending money to every cowboy in town. So the colourful phrases were just tripping off here. They think the Allied have played fast and loose, is lending money to every cowboy in town, apart from ourselves, also lending money to every cowboy in town. They think that they've been sensible bankers and the market just doesn't get it. So, well, I know differently. And were there whispers that you guys could have been in trouble? Yeah, as the week went on and it was it was just getting bigger and bigger and it it was revealing a wider net of of people being involved and just the level of knowledge that there was in Anglo about their actual financial position and 
the lackadaisical and jocose and just dismissive manner in which they were behaving at that time was was unfolding before people's eyes day by day. It was like a, a soap opera. There was an episode each day that was adding to people's understanding of it. And if you look at the, the papers that week, they are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all across the front page. And also, it, I mean, this was cross-platform. It was very big, Irish independent and independent at And there were videos and audios and transcripts. So it was very much kind of a, a multimedia operation. And then you'll notice Friday, Irish independent, there's nothing on the front page. And the only coverage is reportage, basically, of what was happening politically in terms of the reaction. So there's nothing new put into the equation. And it was basically that on the Thursday there was effectively uh, a threat that either were going to be injuncted or charged prejudicing proceedings. My goodness, charged. Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't quite the case that you were bringing in a bag in case you were whittled off down to the joy or anything like that, but it was the notion that that certainly the Director of Public Prosecutions Office was becoming concerned about this because they had prosecutions pending. From our perspective, there was the firm argument, this is in the public interest. The, the taxpayer has forked out tens of billions of euros to prop up a collapsed banking system which knocked on into the, the wider economy. The, the bailout was still underway. The country was was in recovery, yeah, fine, but it was by no means certain that the Irish economy was going to bounce back. The manner in which we can look at it now, 10 years on, from the Anglo tips and go, you know, we've, we've hit full employment and we've got a 65 billion dividend over the next couple of, of years. We were still at that point in the midst of Troika austerity, so we were very much still a, a nation that was in recovery and wasn't clear if it was going to re- recover. So there was, therefore a definitive public interest that the bank at the heart of the collapse, the public deserved to know what had happened. The Anglican has very much raised a pretty much furious reaction amongst the public, people feeling that they hadn't been given the full story of what exactly uh, was going down uh, in Anglo-Irish Bank, which had resulted in the bank guarantee and the bank guarantee ultimately being the start of the end of the, the Celtic Tiger. And the subsequent years of, of the bailout and austerity and all the pain that had been, been inflicted on, on people. It placed enormous pressure on the government. You had Fine Gael and Labour were in office at that point. The Fianna Fáil government had been dramatically chucked out two and a half years earlier. But people weren't seeing that there was a, a sufficient enough response. So the reaction to the Anglo tapes did force greater pressure on the establishment of a banking inquiry you recall there was a subsequent Oireachtas uh, Banking Inquiry and people wanted to see that that would have teeth, that it would have a wide remit uh, and that it would be able to bring about proper scrutiny of uh, what had happened to the Irish economy and also come forward with, with recommendations uh, subsequently. You can also look at it in, in terms of saying that it did expose as well the substantial weaknesses on, on the regulator's side because effectively the bank that was seeking the assistance of the taxpayer had effectively run rings uh, around the central bank and the regulatory system at that time. So my goal tomorrow is to get that through to him. Do you understand? Can I teach you just one piece, not in that language obviously, but can I teach you one piece of banking here? When you've guaranteed somebody's entire liabilities, it's smart to write a very small check to stop them being called. Yeah, yeah. Which bit of that don't you get? 
Yeah, because I don't think he gets it. So we're down in the, the hotel on the Thursday afternoon and we start getting calls that from back in base telling us that there's a bit of a problem and that things might have to be put on the back burner for a while. Meanwhile, we're surrounded by, by paper and audio and everything, getting it all ready for the, for the following day, five days in a row. And then we get a call to say, pull the plug. So we're in mid-flow, you're on a roll, and then suddenly it's like, stop. So I think we just went down to the bar for, for, for a couple of drinks and that was it. So you were literally, the momentum was just bang, 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 and then you just had to stop. We're laughing as you say, you know, we just went down to the bar. But I would imagine you're on full speed for that entire week. You are on high alert. And then suddenly there's that moment, that breath you can catch. I'm sure you're just in that moment, you're actually thinking, oh, my God, like, what have we just come through? And where are we going? We weren't quite clear at that point, would the phrase Anglo tapes be used again? We're actually facing into this dilemma of, okay, is, is this the end of it? Because there was more there was more to come. And we, we got back into it then on, on Saturday and across the, the next week and, and so on. But yeah, on, on that Thursday afternoon, there was that dejected mode because, you know, you're, you're seeing the reaction that this is getting uh, right across the world. You're seeing the, the public interest in it and you're seeing that it is serving the public interest. And then suddenly you have to stop. The tension mounted kind of over the days and there was a lot of, it got quite stressful and there was talk about a guard investigation into, you know, how the tapes had, had, had come into our hands and there was kind of talk about different sort of official uh, reactions and things like that. And there was a fear that, you know, that we might be kind of raided and that the guard maybe would try to seize things or that, you know, we would be subject to a particularly tough kind of um, regime. So. To yeah, kind of to preempt that, yeah. we just sort of stopped working in the office for a little while. Right. But you had already discussed with your wife that... I did. Not, sort of, yeah, halfway through, I kind of said, look, it's getting a little bit, this is getting a little bit sort of tense. It was a fun story to work on, I have to say. So I, it wasn't especially tense. But I did say, look, there is a chance, you know, we might get arrested. The consequences are going to be very low, I think. But it might happen. So just on the off chance you get a call from the office, don't panic. Paul... Was there any time during this investigation, that particular week where you were breaking all these stories, that you were anxious for yourself or for your own well-being? Well, not about your well-being, but we were really in uncharted waters. And that's why Fionan was the team leader on the ground, so to speak. And Donal was there to keep everything in context. And we, we were in direct contact with the paper here on Talbot Street. And uh, we were down the hotel in, in the docks. And number of things we had done before the story went. Like, remember, we had a, we we gave ourselves a good run into it, and as I say to you, we brought in people. There were people brought in. The circular trust was just four or five people, and it, wor- it worked brilliantly, and it was kept hush hush. This was uncharted uncharted territory because the story was so big, because it had affected every man, woman, and child in Ireland, because it had affected global politics, the European politics certainly, the global banking system. So we had set up this little operation centre, but we had to always be conscious that, one, there was a criminal investigation going on into this. It was also politically sensitive because these tapes were showing that the Irish government was asleep at the wheel. Now, it wasn't 
that con- that actual government, it was the previous government, the Fianna Fáil government, which were completely out of track with these guys. And what had happened was all standards had been allowed to lapse to such an extent that nobody really gave a shit anymore. But the Irish government, and Michael Noonan, I remember, accused us of mucking about with this, uh, uh, with, the, with this story. Minister, if Alan Dukes knew that the tapes existed, did he not have a moral duty to the government to to tell the government that these tapes were there? No, the guards are the people who investigate uh, crime in this country. And uh, the guards have a statutory right to gather the evidence. And other people shouldn't be mucking around in guard business uh, because there is the risk of contaminating evidence and contaminated evidence is not admissible in court. And they seem to be more concerned about trying to find out where the lads in the Irish Independent got the Anglo tapes than what their content was. As the Minister for Finance told the House yesterday, there are a number of civil and criminal cases which are currently underway. Uh, In this context, the leaking of the tapes uh, is viewed by the special liquidator as a serious matter, and accordingly the special liquidator is investigating how the tapes uh, came to be leaked. So I think the reason the government, on a diplomatic level, were very, very worried and upset about it, and this is what put us in a bit of peril in that we could have been arrested or could have been injuncted, uh, and the paper could literally have been frozen, stopped on the printing presses, was that this was seen with abs- viewed with absolute horror. For lots of people, this isn't complex at all. So, for instance, for people who are down at the Shelburne Hotel now, as we speak where there is an auction, a fire sale of properties, residential and commercial, people who suffered the brunt of malpractice in the system. It's not complex at all. In fact, it's terribly simple. Some won and they lost. In terms of the key players, Donal, what happened? David Ball, obviously, he was at the time he was in the US and there was a whole kind of uh, saga around that. The, the sort of the inheritors or, you know, the IBRC, which took over from the, the former Anglo, they were in massive legal loggerheads with him, you know, over debts and things like that. And eventually he was bankrupted. Um, he was extradited back to Ireland and, and he was tried. There was a criminal trial. He was, he, was, he was jailed for six years in 2018. He was released, I think, after three years. And that, but that six-year sentence would have only ended this year. Uh, and and uh, John Bow again, you know, he was he there was a criminal trial. He was he was one of a number of executives from both the former Anglo Irish Bank and the former Irish Life and Permanent who were convicted, really in relation to kind of really actions that that were taken to kind of prop up or to, to really to kind of um, to pretend that the Anglo Irish Bank was healthier than it was. They weren't prosecuted for like you know having their hands in the till or anything like that. It wasn't that true. It was really the, the prosecutions were around kind of the pretense that the bank was healthier than it was, which of course is the kind of thing that leads ordinary investors or regulators or anyone else to kind of to protect or to to believe in the, in, in in something that isn't true. Peter Fitzgerald, uh, who was a, who was one of the people who you hear a, a lot on the tapes. He, he was never charged with any any crimes. Um, he actually gave evidence at the banking inquiry, and I remember he he was giving evidence, and I, I can't remember who it was. TD tried to ask about the tapes, you know, because that's what he was known for. And I remember that being being kind of shut down by the by the chair of the banking inquiry. So oh, that's not relevant. That's not relevant. Uh, just tell us about your time at the bank, but don't mention that. 
There are three strands here in yeah. our lives at the minute. Two of them are um, concerned to central bank and one doesn't. The other one is, can I have the loan, please? Yeah, but that, to me, that's the first order. And then I'd be saying, okay, thanks so much. Can we leave now? And I'd want them to say, no, no, clear. We've got something else for you to do. Yeah. You know? No, well, we're ready to talk about the loan. What, what, what do we need to think about? We need a fucking loan because we're running out of money. We gave you the term sheet. Can we have the money? Yeah, okay. Simple. Yeah, I know. I don't know how simple it's going to be, though. It'll be, it'll be stupid simple, because that's where I'm going to take it. And a huge thanks to my guests, Paul Williams, special correspondent, Donal O'Donovan, business editor, and Fionnán Sheehan, Ireland editor, all from the Irish Independent. That's it for the two-part Anglo series. I'm Siobhan Maguire, and the series was produced and researched by myself with sound by Niall McMonagall. Now, over the weekend, we have even more coverage on the Anglo tapes for you to enjoy on independent.ie. Archive clips from RTE, Channel 4, Euronews, The Guardian, Deutsche Welle, Das Bild, the BBC, Associated Press, Eroctus TV on Fublocked, and tape recordings exclusive to independent.ie. If you like the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.